Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. For millions of small business owners across the U.S., March was an exceptionally tough month as they came to terms with prolonged lockdowns getting in the way of operations. That's the story we brought you in the last episode. But it turns out that April would prove to bring an entirely new headache. When we were ordered to close, it just devastated sales. I think that the next day our sales were 25% of what they usually were. We thought this is the end of us. So when this PPP thing came, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> the government is going to help me. You know, like I'm the last person that they ever think of. The banks did not even have the information yet as to what the application was going to be like. We did hear that you had to be an active customer with an active business checking account. So we thought we were in good shape, uh, having been a customer for 20 years. I applied online, and then they said that I would hear back from them shortly. (laughs) And that's when all the waiting started. PPP, or the Paycheck Protection Program was meant to be a lifeline to small businesses trying to survive amidst the forced closures, broken supply chains, and economic uncertainty caused by coronavirus. Within two weeks of its launch, the relief program was tapped out. And yesterday, the U.S. government relaunched it. Now there's an extra $320 billion on offer. There's got to be a lot of small businesses like me that have hung on waiting for this little bit of of hope to keep people working. After the second round's all gone, then what are we going to do? This is Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keene. On this episode, we're looking at how the first round of the rescue rolled out and how it's expected to run in round two. Here's a small hint. The money's in such high demand that banks say the second round of funds could run out before this week is through. At first, the government program seemed fairly straightforward. As a result of a $2.2 trillion aid bill that was passed at the end of March, businesses with fewer than 500 employees would be able to apply for loans up to $10 million. That was from a total pot of $350 billion. Now, if three quarters of the loan was spent on salaries and these businesses kept their staff, the loan would become a free grant. The program was overseen by the government's Small Business Administration, and because of the scale of the money on offer, the U.S. Treasury turned to private sector banks for help dispensing the cash. But processing applications for even a fraction of the 30 million qualifying American businesses, not to mention the countless self-employed contractors, well, that would prove much more difficult than the Trump administration expected, even for the country's biggest banks. The banks have really tried to be seen as being the engines of of their recovery, as being the people who you can depend on during this crisis. Laura Noonan is our U.S. banking editor. Even though the big banks will all tell you, oh, we're there for our customers, we're there in the markets, we're in the trenches with them, there's a community connection that comes from the smaller banks. As you get to the small to medium-sized companies, like 10 employees to 50, 100, they still tend to have a bias towards the community banks and the smaller local banks, particularly at the smaller end of the scheme, because I guess 
they value the person in relationship and there can be a feeling that like the big bank with the headquarters in San Francisco or in New York doesn't really care about the small business in Iowa or Oklahoma in the way that the small local bank will. When I set up my business, I was told bank local, you know, do your do your business banking at a local bank. We met Moran in our last episode. She owns the Drapery Wholesale Company in Virginia. She's got one full-time and four part-time employees. Especially with micro-businesses like mine, they have more individual leeway when it comes to approving loans or extending lines of credit. And you can it's easier to build a personal relationship with being a smaller business. So that's what I did. And when we first spoke with her, she was waiting to hear back from her bank about her application for the Paycheck Protection Program. But the banking relationship that Moran and many other small business owners in similar positions came to rely on, well, these would be upended with this rescue plan. By April 2nd, especially the mid to late afternoon, banks were getting very, very worried because all the news from D.C. was like, this thing is going to launch soon, it's going to be imminent. People telling their constituents to go to your bank and get your money. And the banks still didn't really know what it was. Nor did they know how to get that information into their own online systems and then connect directly to the Small Business Administration's own portal. In order to build that, there are things that you need to know about the parameters of both what the borrowers will have to fill in, so the basic information that the borrowers would have to give, and then various things around the terms of the loans. And banks didn't get the final specification until 11pm on the Thursday night, that's 11pm on the 2nd, ahead of, in theory, launching it the following morning. Banks had people working on it, they say, through the night, several teams, they have like 24-7 operations on this, but it's still, for most banks, wasn't enough time. Even my bank, you know, they said, you know, the guidance for, for what they needed to do to submit to the SBA for the PPP loans, they got it, at, you know, late at night on Thursday and the portal opened on Friday. You know, my loan manager said, like, they didn't have enough time to even go through it and understand it completely before the floodgates opened. When I submitted my application on the the 7th, my bank didn't even have a list of what documents were required. You know, they didn't have time to come up with that list. And so it was a Dropbox in, you know, my online banking portal that they just, they literally said, just put everything in. I said, what do you mean everything? said, literally everything. If you want to, you know, print out all of your books and drop it off in front of our bank, we'll take those and put it with your loan application. You know, and, and so, you know, cue to me literally downloading every report off of QuickBooks and just data dumping. After that data dump, Moran got an email confirmation that her application was uploaded. The next week, she heard from one of the loan managers that it had been sent up for approval. To me, that was like, OK, great. You know, if they've already done the provisional approval, that means that it'll be approved that day. I didn't understand what the process was between that approval period and what it took to get inputted into whatever portal they use with the SBA. And what I'm understanding now is that is the big backlog. I think the banks knew that the level of reputational risk was quite high and they were very conscious of that. 
So they just threw a lot of people at it. And they had two kinds of people. They had the tech people who were in charge of building a solution that would be able to accommodate all of this demand. And then they had the poor relationship managers who were in charge of fielding the calls from the clients who wanted the money and trying to explain to them how they could get through it. And then they had people who were just manually processing stuff. I spoke to one bank that had 8,000 people working just on the Paycheck Protection Program, 8,000. But despite the resources a lot of the banks put towards the program, the application process was grueling. After our last episode and a series of news stories written by my colleagues, a number of small business operators got in touch with us to explain. I was in communication with my banker all weekend. She was uh, real, real responsive. Finally, on Sunday evening at about five o'clock, she sent me an email and said, the portal will be up, ready to go first thing Monday morning. That's Peter Norman. He's the CEO of a medical equipment company in Seattle. He's got about 200 employees. When I got into work Monday morning, I opened up my email and my that same banker had emailed me a press release from Wells Fargo CEO that Wells Fargo would only be helping or accepting applications from customers with 50 employees or less. And that they had already reached the $10 billion cap that the feds had put on them. Yeah, so I I called my CPA first thing, told him the email that I got. He actually thought it was a a joke, said, uh, that can't be right. Wells Fargo did begin processing applications from larger banking customers once the Fed removed its asset cap, but Peter Norman had already moved on. Meanwhile, other business owners said they faced different problems. Tom Dunn thought that the Paycheck Protection Program could help him hold on to the 32 people he employed at his restaurant. His accountant helped him file an application through a regional bank in the southeast. I had looked online and it said my application will be submitted when the funding opens back up. But I couldn't believe that my application had not even been submitted. Maria Loss runs a leather accessory warehouse. She submitted her PPP application to a major U.S. bank. I mean, from what I'd heard, they were supposed to fund me within several days. And I waited and I waited and then I started being like, gosh, did I fill my forms in properly? Did I get everything into them? But she couldn't figure out how to get answers to any questions she had about her application. They had a little bot in the corner on their site that was like, oh, chat. And it wasn't actually a chat. It was just this ridiculous thing that would circle you back to the same link. Like, we will get back to you shortly. We will get back to you shortly. And there was there's no way to get any information from them. Alicia Gallant is the sole proprietor of her real estate business. As a self-employed person and an independent contractor here, you basically are your own employer. The money that you're making that you end up keeping after your expenses is your salary. And we do pay taxes. But she says the first bank she tried to submit her application to didn't want to accept it. As a sole proprietor, the banks were not interested because I did not and could not produce 941s or 940s, which is your proof of having wages. They didn't want to deal with the sole proprietor. Meanwhile, London-based Bianca Cawthorn is trying to balance government programs in the UK and the US to help her business, which operates in both countries. The issue is it's got to help businesses now. It, it's really no point helping businesses in two to three months. The damage will be done by then. The idea of time running out, that was a sentiment that was felt by almost everyone we spoke to. 
there was a real feeling of injustice and a feeling of time just slipping through people's hands because once you put in the request, you were paralyzed because you didn't get any information and you didn't know where you were and you couldn't really do anything. And that became an extremely frustrating thing for borrowers. There was also confusion about whether you had to stick with the bank that was doing your payroll because the amount that you get is based off of your payroll. And some companies I spoke to thought that they could only use the bank that processed their payroll. That isn't in fact true, but that's what they thought. And there was no real central source of information. There was a lot of rumours going around about bigger clients being prioritised, about smaller clients being prioritised, about friends being prioritised. And the system was just patently unfair. I mean, I know of people who applied in the third and didn't get their money, and people who applied in the tenth and did. So that kind of thing is just really difficult for people to handle because it is unfair. It's not like if you do everything right and follow all the steps, you will definitely get the money. That's not how it works. And within two weeks, as negotiations on Capitol Hill about topping it up dragged on, the funding ran out. Obviously, all my friends and family know that I run a small business, so bless their hearts. They've all been, you know, texting me every single news story about any of these loan programs. And so when, you know, it was announced that the funding was was gone, I I decided, okay, I'll call again to see, you know, what the deal is, hoping to hear, oh, yeah, we submitted it. It's not, you know, you're good. And the first woman I spoke to said, oh, I have a list right here and literally had to go read down a list looking for my name to see if I was one of their accounts that had been approved or not. She's like, well, you're not on this list, so let me transfer you. But when she was transferred, she'd find out that she didn't make the first round, much like other small business owners across the country. Who ultimately got a piece of that $349 billion um, in the first round? I mean, it was basically the lucky people. So it was a combination of big businesses, as we learned. So there were some large businesses that used a loophole or you could call it a loophole. You could call it a design flaw, whereby if you had multiple subsidiaries, they could apply independently. So they did that. People like, say, Shake Shack, Roots Chris Steakhouse, a couple of big names here in the US who are listed publicly managed to get money also. But I mean, small businesses did get money as well. Independent contractors did get money. So A little slice of everyone got money, but certainly a lot of people got left behind. Laura, there's a sense that because some of these big household names, Shake Shack, Ruth's Chris, managed to get 10 or 20 million dollars in the first round, that that came at the expense of some of these smaller guys. But in reality, according to data from the SBA, which you cited in a recent article, almost three quarters of the fund's recipients had applied for loans of less than $150,000, which is a fairly small sum, you know, by comparison. So I guess, did the companies that were supposed to get the funding, are they the ones who ended up getting it? I mean, just mathematically, some of the very small shops would have been applying for $10,000, $20,000. So it takes a lot of them to get to a 20 million. In terms of who it was meant to help, I mean, it depends on whether you think it's about saving businesses or about helping employees. If you're working for a large fast food chain, a national one, and you've been sacked and you haven't got any work because it's closed, are you any less entitled to get money than someone who's working for a five employee fast food place owned by a family? The people are doing the same jobs. You know, it was called the Paycheck Protection Program, not this not the small business protection program. If the objective of it was to protect the employees who were affected by all this 
then there is a case to giving it to anyone who was letting go of it employees because of this. Now, they've kind of backpedaled a bit and said that it should only be used if you haven't got other funding sources and that publicly traded companies should have other funding sources. It's still not clear to me that those companies with other funding sources are going to continue to pay their employees. And looking back, is there any way to explain why those borrowing, say, more than a million might have had an easier time getting through than those looking for much smaller sums? In terms of the easier passage big companies had, there are some things that were in their favour. The first of all was that they had professional advice in terms of what they were submitting. That means they were far more likely to get it right on the first time. So if you were a small mom and pop store and you filled out one box wrong in the form, that could have been the end of your application because by the time the bank came back to you and you fixed it, it could have been gone. If you have a lawyer doing the forms for you and the lawyer has done 50 of these forms, chances are it'll go right first time. And for every sole proprietor or small business owner painstakingly trying to fill out confusing application forms, there's also a bank teller or a client relationship manager trying to figure out a system of their own, one they'd likely never used before, meaning it was a pretty big pain for the banks too. I think the pain from this far exceeds the payback for the banks. And yeah, there are fees, but the fees, I don't think, even cover the operating costs. Also, the individual relationship managers at the larger institutions are powerless. So, you know, I know of cases where people have spoken to their personal banker who has said, yeah, yeah, I really want to look after you. I really want to look after you. But then it just goes into the machine. So you're sitting there in your branch and God knows where. You have no control over whether your client's application makes it into that e-tram batch and whether it gets up on the SBA system. So I think it has really shown what big machines the big banks are. And that has been quite frustrating for people working for the big banks who just don't have any influence on the outcome. And also, I don't think any bank went into this in bad faith. No bank went into this saying, I don't want my small business customers to get this money. I think everyone did the best they could and some of them did better than others, but everyone wanted a good outcome and people have been working incredibly hard to try to get the right outcome and try to get as much as they can for their customers. So it's been a bit soul destroying in the sense that you put in so much effort and all you get is abuse. Now, I know there aren't going to be many people who will cry tears with bankers, and I'm not saying we should, but what I am saying is that at individual level, people have worked incredibly hard on this and it has been not the most fulfilling process for them. The story wasn't much different for Moren dealing with her smaller community bank in Virginia. Now, the queue at the smaller bank might have been shorter than those at the big national banks, but there were still so many people looking for help, and it came all at the same time. The VP of, of the loan office ended up calling me personally and talking to me for about a half an hour on Saturday. And that was when I fully understood the backlog wasn't cherry picking. It wasn't anything other than they literally did not have enough people to input it into the system. Like they, they literally didn't have the workforce to get it done in a timely manner. And that's not entirely their fault. You know, the portal kept glitching. She said it was taking, you know, four hours to input the application that they've already approved into the portal for the SBA. There are, according to her, 38 applications out of all of their accounts that are have been approved by them, but they ran out of time to input into the system. She told me that she was making these calls to every single person on that list. Laura, you talked about the importance of the relationship between a small business or 
I mean, any business for that matter, and its bank. But I wonder if this experience might uh, inspire or even force uh, some small businesses to actually up and leave their banks once the crisis is over. So I know a lot of businesses who are telling me now that they want to do that and that as soon as this crisis is over, they're changing banks. While there are good reasons for people to want to leave their banks after this, they probably won't. People are angry in the moment and then that quickly dies down. And when they come out of this crisis, they'll have a lot of firefighting to do. So moving banks might not be high on their priority when they're just trying to get up and running again. It's also if you are a struggling business trying to find a new bank that wants to become your new lending bank isn't the easiest thing in the world as well. Also, banks are going to try to love bomb. So talking to some of the banks, they are aware of how unhappy their customers are. They're trying to get through the rest of this program, but they are thinking longer term. How do we make this up to people? How do we make this good? And I think we will see some elements of love bombing over the coming months as well. To be honest, I, I don't know a lot of banks that would offer more direct client communication than their you know personal cell phone number. And I did feel like at least they know that they failed. And, and I heard that from a human being, which I know is better than a lot of people who are stuck in limbo at the moment. I think really, as soon as the portal opens, I'm just going to have to call daily or twice a day just to know where it is in the system because they have not had enough time at my bank to set up a system to keep us all informed other than literally just calling us when they have news. With the portal open for its second round, it hit a new hurdle on Monday. There were so many loan requests made by banks that the computer system processing these applications at the SBA crashed. Some banks told my colleagues that they only managed to process a small fraction of the applications they had prepared. You can read the latest on the Small Business Loan Program and how American businesses are faring through the crisis. It's all at FT.com. We've linked to a few particularly good stories in the show notes to get you started. We've got something else to help you navigate the uncertainty coronavirus has brought to the global economy. You can now get 30 days of free access to the FT's Coronavirus Business Update newsletter. It's a level-headed email briefing that looks at how the pandemic is affecting global markets, business, and workplaces. To sign up, just go to ft.com slash behindthemoneycovid. We've also linked to that in the show notes. This episode was produced by Oluwakemi Aladisui. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.